Good morning. I will mimic the beauty of God's creation this morning. Plus, I had my wife sitting right next to me. Even more beauty of God's creation. You got to start right, guys. I mean, if you want to win the. And I mean it. I mean it. Well, it's a wonderful thing to be with you together today to open up God's Word as I opened up the first hour. What an incredible thing to consider God's Word together, to reason together in the Word of God. Pastor mentioned in his prayer, as he told the Lord what God knows and wants to remind us of, when we see the Word of God, it's fascinating how the Holy Spirit works. I just made almost the exact statement to students this week. When we read the Word of God, we pay attention because it's even greater than your own Father on earth speaking to you about something important. It's the God of the universe, the Father of all things, speaking to you. And He takes the time to do that. And He has preserved His Word. I think that's a fantastic way to consider as we reason together in the Word of God. Uh, Another passage as we continue through Galatians and some of you, if you've read ahead, some of you good students have read ahead, and you see what we're going through again, you say, circumcision again? Where's the list? I'll sign up. I'm good. It's all right. It's saved by grace through faith. Put me on the list. I'm good. And you might be thinking, why again? Well, I'll tell you why, because God wrote it. You take it up with him. He's the one who you need to argue with. But here's why. Because there's so much more to it than that. Because there's so much more to it than that today right now, in 2022, in Plainfield, Indiana, and beyond, that we must deal with in God's Word, and lessons to be learned in the depths of exactly what God means when He is warning us against legalism, circumcision, and beyond. And I'll just set this up once again, and I think it's important to note, anything you attach to the cross of Jesus Christ that you believe is necessary for salvation is a sin, and it is from the pit of hell. This is a danger that all of us can fall into because there are multiple categories in which that may happen. So if you're wondering, I'm good. Well, no, we're not good because God wants to continue to teach us until we take our very last breath, and I think that's an important thing to understand. So as we consider this morning, I know we're thinking of this as we've done something already, we've covered this already, but that's not true. And I want to tell you why it's not true. I want you to kind of look at very quickly in a review of what we've already covered. Chapter 1 and 2, we remember Paul is establishing his authority. But in chapter 3 in Galatians, we have an explanation of doctrine that we went through. And then, as we just finished up last week, we have an illustration of doctrine. But here's why this really matters. Now we're shifting. Paul's going to give us a therefore. And we always got to figure out what the therefore is there for. And he's transitioning us into putting this into practice. Now, what do you do with my word? So as we considered the last time, Pastor delivered this very complex passage about giving us an illustration. And Paul will do this on occasion. And at times he'll say, well, this is just a human example. And it's an allegory, but it is giving us a representation of faith versus works, flesh versus the Spirit, what God does versus what we do. And it's very important to understand that this example of Hagar and Ishmael versus Sarah and Isaac is really an example of works-based salvation versus true grace-by-faith salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. So that's where we were last week, and now we're going to transition into, okay, what does that look like for you? And before we do that, let's pray and 
then we'll get into the Word. Heavenly Father, You are wonderful and good and perfect and righteous. And as we consider Your Word, we should tremble before it. We should be in awe of it. I pray that we're reminded, myself and everyone here within my hearing, is understanding that Your Word is precious and it's You speaking to us and it should impact us and it will. And I pray that Your Holy Spirit will convict us and move us and change us, transform us. And as we continue to walk in Your grace, as we'll see today, that it becomes very clear to the world that what we do and what we are is from above and it is offered to mankind, those who are lost, that You're going to call some to Yourself. And today even, we pray for salvation. That although I certainly do not know the hearts of all of the people in this room, I do know Your heart, and I do know what You desire, and I do know that there will be some who for maybe the first time clearly understand Your Word and the Gospel, and You draw them, You convict them, You change them, and by faith they believe. We praise Your name for that already. And for those of us who know You, who have been walking with You, who You've already redeemed, I pray that we walk in likeness of You, that we walk in a way that is worthy of our calling that You've called us to, that we walk and understand that Your Word is good for us today, and that we're going to continue to renew our minds, not by this world's standard or pattern, but by Yours. We love You, Lord. We thank You for this passage so rich. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, This week, what we're going to do, these next few weeks rather, here's what we're going to do. I want to give you a quick breakdown of what Galatians 5 is going to look like going forward. Today, the condemnation of legalism, that the trouble with it, the struggle with it, and why it's such a problem. Next week, we'll see, I'll take you to 13 through 15, of using the freedom you have, if you have embraced that, for evil. Mm, there's, a, there's a responsibility with the freedom in Christ. And then in a few weeks, Pastor will then deliver to us life in the Spirit versus life in the flesh. There is a contrast there, very famous contrast, but again, very rich passage that gives us so much instruction as to how to live as we, as we consider and we think of um, exactly what that looks like from God's perspective working through us. So this morning, however, we're in Galatians chapter 5. Turn there with me if you're not already there, so that we can read the text through and then break this down, and I will tell you how I will break this down after we read the text. So be with me in Galatians chapter 5. I'll read 1 through 12, a long section. Some of you are thinking, oh boy, you know, the Colts game does start at 4 o'clock, 3 o'clock this afternoon. You had four verses this morning in hour one, and you went 53 minutes. Now, what in the, trust me, I'm going to get us through this and we will do fine. Don't worry, it's the Word of God. Remember, pastor was setting you up. Tremble before it. It's good. All right, here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again, again to a yoke of slavery. And this is, this is a, a critical piece as we can transition. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. 
and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Pretty strong language from Paul here. When it comes to doctrine and when it comes to the truth of the gospel, I'm with Paul every step of the way here, and I pray that you are too. There are strong words here from Paul. There should be strong words in your heart. Anytime we try to disrupt that formula, the only formula, and those of you at home, I'm I'm, I'm pointing it by grace through faith in Christ alone. It should rile you up as a believer, as a Christian, as a Christ one, because you know it's the only way. And anything that we add or take away from this should be an offense to us. It's certainly an offense to Christ. So that long passage, here's how we're going to break that down this morning. If I can continue on, we'll see. Possibly I shut it off. It's moving. I'm there. Here we go. Here's where we're going to go. Verse 1 is our transition passage. We're going to see the transition from this doctrine, the illustration, to the practical. Verse 2, legalism and this, this is important, makes Christ unnecessary. I pray that just riles you up from the inside. Boy, is He more than necessary. He's everything. Verse 3, legalism results in the necessity to keep the whole law. That's troubling. Verses 4-6, through six, legalism can cause a fall from grace. That one's going to be fun to look through. We're going to see a lot of good things from God's Word, a lot of things that we can take to our daily walk from these, these few passages. Verses 7-10, through 10, legalism works against sanctification. And then finally, 11-12, through 12, legalism takes away the offense of the cross. Which I'll just say right away, that is a very attractive thing for people to do. We cannot let ourselves fall into that potential potential risk. All right, verse 1. Let's look at the transition. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read it again to you again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A couple things here. We see stand firm and therefore. So as I mentioned before, why is that therefore there? Well, Paul's transition from last week, as I mentioned, is from doctrine to practical. It's from Book learning, book understanding, this is the law, this is the scripture, to what does this look like right now? So he's made the legal defense, as we've heard, illustrated very carefully by Paul, using the Old Testament, using what the Jews that were there and listening to him knew, and I want to remind you, he's preaching not just to the people who are hearing false doctrine, but he's preaching to those who were preaching false doctrine. There were men who he loved, who were falling potentially into this trap, the Judaizers that were there. And I have to believe that this is impacting them from the Word of God, from the Old Testament. But now the transition from Scripture, he's now exhorting the believer to just, don't just know it, but do it. And isn't that always the case for us? As we sit here and listen to the Word of God preached and taught, as we consider that, it is always, the onus is on us to take that and use that for God's glory, to use that in a practical way in our lives in that moment. So as we consider this passage, it's important to understand a couple things. The believer is challenged to not foolishly go back to living a false Christian life. Notice here in in this very first passage, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's put that behind us. We're not thinking that way anymore. As for you, this sort of idea, that is not who we are anymore. 
We're challenged to not foolishly go back to living a life that's false and promoting a false Christian doctrine based on works or based on some sort of ceremony, but based on grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. His exhortation to stand firm, by the way, is not unique to this passage. And I want to show you here as we go through the, these other examples, and there's a few, that there's a couple passages here, and they all reference back to the same idea. What are we standing firm in? And we're standing firm in pure doctrine that comes from above, the eternal Word of God. We stand firm in the truth that we all know. Anyone who is in Christ in here has heard the pure doctrine of the gospel. That is how you became saved. You heard it, God drew you, you were saved. And that is where this comes from, this idea of standing firm. We have seen this many times. So here's a few examples. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says then, So then, brothers, stand firm. Notice he uses another connector. So then, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You've heard it preached. You've read it yourself. You know what God's word says. Stand firm in it. Stand strong in it. Peter says very similar thing. And this, by the way, is Silas as we look at this. So think of it by Silas, a faithful brother, brother as I regard him. He is the one who helped pen First Peter for Peter. Peter is writing this, but he is penning this for him. He says this about what he has taught them through the letter and potentially as he spoke to some of them. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, standing firm in it, standing firm in the true grace of God. This is exactly the discussion Paul is having with the Galatian church. Standing firm in the grace of God. What you have already heard from Scripture, you stand firm in it. Notice this is a choice you are making. You are making a decision. Am I going to believe God and put myself in the back? It's very tempting to continue to take on legalism, take on the flesh, because it makes you feel like you've accomplished something. Isn't that true? How we feel this way as humans, that we feel as though I've done something. Well, unfortunately, we don't have the capacity to do what Christ has done for us. And the, 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 the more often that we embrace that, I think the better and more effective we will be at presenting the gospel. Here's where Paul uses it again, as we're here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Very famous passage that all of you are familiar with. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Well, think about some of those things from Ephesians 6. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes ready to deliver the gospel. Those things that we consider. The shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. What are we grounded in? The Word of God. The Word of God is where we refocus. We stand firm on that. Not man-made ideas, not man-made rules, not traditions, but standing firm on the Word of God. Philippians 1.27 on the same slide. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. I shared this last week of Christ, but notice the connections that we see. Same author, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, same penner. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, connecting to first hour, unified in this, with one mind striving side by side for what? The faith of the gospel. Grace of the gospel, faith of the gospel, we stand firm in it. So there's our transition. Paul's telling us, if I've, I've shown you, I've made the defense, I've given you this argument, 
They may have been saying the same thing we were thinking. Sign me up. I'm good. No, no, no. Let's see this practically now. Let's see this for you personally. Put your name in this. Stamp yourself inside of this so that you can see. So as we transition, Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, this is where we're going to go. Why a believer should reject legalism. Maybe you think, I know this already. God's telling us, no, you don't. You need to learn a little bit more. He's saying, I'm going to have you review this. I was just speaking earlier with a a few different people, actually, about this same topic. My mother-in-law passed away 15 years ago today, and the Lord took her to glory. And um, my parents have, have both gone on home as well. But I'll tell you what I remarked about all of them is that throughout their whole life, and I know many of you share this, they're still learning. They're still being sanctified. They're still drawing closer to the Lord, becoming more like Him. That is such an encouragement for us as we go forward and continue to run the race that God has in front of us. So we continue to study His Word. But this is what we see. This number one, the first one that we're going to see, why we should reject legalism, is this one. It makes Christ unnecessary. That should chill you to the bone. Here's what the passage says. Galatians 5, 2, I have the ESV and the NASB up here because I want to show you there's a couple different words that we can use that help us get a broader understanding. Most of it is the same, but we have a couple things that are different, and I'll point these out. 5, 2 from ESV, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The, the NASB says, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. All of these words help us to get a greater understanding. In other words, if you accept it or you receive it as necessary for salvation. We know this from context. We know this from what Paul has already told us. We know this from what Paul is going to continue to preach to us. That if you accept it or receive it as if you have to have it in order to be saved, then he's saying it's not an advantage to you. It's not a benefit to you. It doesn't help you. It is worthless to you. And what you're in essence saying is, Christ is of no need for me. I don't need him. He's not necessary for me. He's just an afterthought. He's icing on the cake. Let me tell you, Christian, he's none of those things. He's God incarnate. He's the great I am. He is the one in whom you will bow your knee to. I will bow my knee to. He is not an afterthought. He is the thought. He's not part of the foundation. He is the foundation. He is the great I am, the Lion of Judah, and we need to acknowledge that. So this is a dangerous game to play when we begin to think, yeah, but, no, there's no yeah, buts. Go to Acts chapter 15. Let me show you something here. Acts chapter 15 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 15. It's on the screen, but the the, the passage is not. So go to Acts chapter 15 with me. Acts 15. I've, I've taken you back here before. But as we consider this debate, this issue one more time about circumcision, I want you to understand it's more than that. It's anything we add to this. The idea that was being argued at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 is, is grace enough? Is Christ enough? Is Jesus enough? That's the real issue here. So starting at verse 6, let's take a look at this. This debate really was bothering the Jewish people. The Gentiles were coming in. They're not following the ceremonial law, including circumcision, which is at the heart of this, but it goes beyond that. Here's what they concluded, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by mouth the Gentiles should hear 
the word of the, of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, key to that, knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Similar language that we're hearing from Paul. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We couldn't do this. Why would you be putting this on them? That's the idea here. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. See, Peter understood this very early on. The apostles understood this very early on, that we're going to have to fight this battle right here, right now. And I brought this passage up, the very end of this, and I want you to notice as we continue on, verse 12. And all the assembly, it's on the screen, fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first uh, visited the Gentiles to take from them from the people for his name. For his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Certainly talking about the nation of Israel, but beyond. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make who makes these things known from of old. This was always God's plan. Salvation by grace through faith has always been the plan. What's messed it up is us. We've added to it. We've changed it. We've misunderstood Scripture. But keep in mind, when James is quoting the Old Testament, he's telling us this has always been how it was and how it always will be, and we should never touch this. Christ is more than necessary he's everything he's all that we need so when we go back to galatians 2 and certainly we're in galatians 5 but remember all the way back to galatians 2 as he is defending this argument earlier on he says this and i used this as well earlier last week i've been crucified with christ it's no longer i who live but christ who lives in me in the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice what he says here. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Same letter. Same letter. He's coming back around. He has given this, this great defense, and now he's saying, now you take it seriously. Are you nullifying? Are you nixing? Are you eliminating the need for Christ? If you do that, it's a dangerous doctrine. If we do that as believers and forget what we were saved from, how effective will we be in communicating this incredible good news to others? Can you imagine what sort of life we will be living? So, number one, why should we reject legalism? We don't want to take Christ out of Christianity. He is Christianity. We don't want to take Christ out of the way. He is the way. So, number two, number two, why reject legalism? Verse three, if you don't, then you must keep the whole law. Here they are again from the ESV and the NASB, Galatians chapter 5, verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And again, in, in, in the NASB version, I testify again to every man who receives, accepts, receives, same idea, circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Obligated, ob obligation for the whole law, accepts, receive. Now let me tell you what Paul's not saying. 
He's not saying that he has a huge problem with circumcision from the beginning to the end. That's not true at all. As a matter matter of fact, we're going to see that if we look in Acts chapter 16. Look at what Paul does. And I've talked about this. I don't want to spend too much time. But he does this with Timothy. This has a little bit to do with the freedom in Christ and being willing to consider others more important than yourself. Because after establishing that circumcision isn't necessary for salvation, look at what Paul does with Timothy. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Notice this. He had him circumcised. But I want you to understand, Paul's not, he's not contradicting himself. Paul's not saying he needed that to be saved. He was already saved. He was already saved. This is one of those things that we'll talk about next week where he was willing to sacrifice of himself so that the gospel, gospel could be proclaimed. So he could put himself second. He would put God first and others, others second and then him last. He was willing to sacrifice a freedom he had. A freedom he certainly didn't have to, he didn't have to be circumcised. Already established, but he did that for the sake of the cross. Paul's not against circumcision as, a, as, a, as a, uh, an obedience, as walking in obedience, or even as a tradition that reminded them, a symbol of, that reminded them of what God had done for them. The circumcision of the heart, the real circumcision. He, he, didn't, he didn't have a problem with that. We had a problem was, is if you think that this symbol, this this obedience that is, that is physical is all you need. If that's all you have to have, that's where Paul got riled up. And that's the problem. That's the issue that we would have. Look at what Paul says about this in Romans 2. We've covered this many weeks ago, but look at this. It's necessary again. Romans 2, 25 through 29. In case you were wondering, what's his view on circumcision? The law, things to add to the gospel, go beyond circumcision here, but That is also what we're dealing with, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, if you do it all. It's an act of obedience, it's a physical reminder, it's good, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If you you don't follow it all, you're in big trouble. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? If he can pull that off, if some Gentile can be perfect in every way, what difference does it make if a physical operation has been performed on him, verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Notice what he's saying here. But a Jew is one inwardly. And by the way, I think this is including us. We've talked about the inheritance we have in Christ, being heirs with Christ, being grafted in. We've already discussed that. I think we could be in play here. Is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is all him. This is not all us. Remember, this goes beyond circumcision. Fill in the gaps with whatever you've added to the gospel. Whatever you have put on, whatever yoke you have put on to this that you think it is necessary in order to be saved. Maybe it's showing up at church every Sunday. Maybe it's specifically following the Ten Commandments. I've done these. I'm good to go. Maybe it's wearing a tie. That's not one for me, as you notice. I don't do that very often. Maybe it's the way you dress, the way you talk. I don't know. Something that you should do in holiness, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons. 
You're, you're doing it to earn something you can't earn rather than doing it to honor and praise the Lord. Very interesting. Paul's giving us this understanding. But then James really hits you between the eyes. Look at what James says about this same idea. Whoever keeps the whole law, verse two, chapter 2, verse 10, but fails in one point. Okay, so let's say you've pulled that off. You've been this person who has said, yeah, I'm pretty good. I do all these things, and I'm comparing myself to my neighbors, and I'm, I'm really good. And I've done all these things. He says, okay, but you've got to do them all. And if you fall in one point, you've become guilty of all of it. Boy, you become, this becomes a real problem in your daily life. This becomes a real issue. This is going to cause nothing but anxiety and pressure, guilt that you don't need. For he who said, do not commit adultery, else said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. You might think, well, I've done neither of these. Oh, really? Better run and check the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Because what's in your heart is what God pays attention to. We've already seen this today. God looks at the heart and what you think, what's your, what your, what your passion, what's your consideration, why you do, uh, that's, what, that's what makes you guilty. So speak and so act, so though, says those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Okay, so that's what we see, keeping the whole law. Mark chapter 10, you know this passage. Turn there very quickly. I think this will help us to transition into the next. But Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, we see this illustrated so well. I referenced this in hour one but did not look at it specifically. So let's look at it today. Mark chapter 10. This is also found in Matthew and in Luke's Gospels. Interestingly enough, as, we, as you turn there, Matthew's Gospel makes reference to this man being young. Luke's Gospel makes reference to this man being a ruler. We would think probably a Jewish ruler. He certainly was a Jewish man. And here's the struggle that continues. It's beyond circumcision. So you're in Mark chapter 10. Let's take a look at this starting at verse 17. You know the account. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let me just pause right there. Right away, he's using a term that Jesus is going to key on. He says good. Now, we already know that only God is good. Before we read this, I don't want you to think. And there are those, especially of those in a persuasion that is cultish, that is indicating that Jesus is saying he's not God here when he makes this statement. Now, he's challenging this man to think about what you're asking. Do you understand what you're asking? Only God is good. What the man didn't understand and what Christ wants him to see is that God is standing right in front of him. What he could only see, I'll just tell you right off the bat, was his own pride and self-righteousness. So fill in the gap with what that is. All right, let's read the text with that setup. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear faultlessness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He said to him, just look at the gall, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Can you imagine? He clearly didn't know who he was standing in front of, but he clearly didn't have a very good understanding of his own heart. I think we can fall, easily fall into the trap of saying, boy, this foolish young man. But are we, are we looking at our own life? Have we looked at this in our, indi- our, our day-to-day activity? Have we allowed ourselves to think this way at times? And I would say, if we're being honest, there are times that we do, where we think, look at what I have done. I've done this, and this certainly is pleasing the Lord, and boy, he's happy with this. Look at what I've done for him. He's lucky to have me on his team. Be careful. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've, com- I've com- uh, kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, 
I love this. I love this, this particular version from Mark 10. He says he looked at him and loved him. He loved him, knowing what he was about to do. He said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. What he's really saying here is, you need to unload all what you think you've done. Money too, but everything you're holding and clinging so closely to that you believe is bringing you righteousness and eternal life. He came to Jesus wanting to hear the answer he wanted to hear, not the truth. He came to Jesus holding on to all his tradition, his money, the things that he believed. And keep in mind, the Jews at that time thought if you were rich, that's because God was blessing you and you were doing right. And we know that's nonsense. He was saying, get rid of all of that. And notice his reaction. Disheartened by the saying, didn't want to embrace the truth, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Mm. Why we want to make sure that we reject that idea, this man missed it. He needed Jesus and he was right in front of him. The people you present the gospel to need Jesus, and you get to present it to them right in front of them. Make sure that you don't attach anything to that other than the grace of Jesus Christ. Number three, why reject legalism? Legalism can lead to a fall from grace. This is a doozy. Let's take a look at this one. Galatians chapter 5, 4 through 6. pastor gave me some great counsel on this this week to look at the depths of this passage. Here's what Paul says. If you've done that, you've attached something to the grace of God, here's what he says is happening to you. You are severed, separated, estranged from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You who are thinking that you need to do this to be saved. This physical thing. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, rehammering that home. Now, this is an, an interesting passage to look at, but I want to start with what this isn't. And I'll tell you right off the bat, those who believe, and I'll say falsely, scripturally falsely, that you can lose your salvation, always point to this passage. Always point to this passage that if... If, if there's some way in Scripture that points that you could lose your salvation, they think this one certainly does say this. But I'm going to tell you something. You cannot pick a single verse or a few words, or really what they do is just a phrase within this verse to justify your doctrine or your interpretation of Scripture. You have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. You have to use Scripture to defend Scripture. And I think that it's important to do that. It is impossible, believer, Christian, beloved, to lose your salvation. Why? Because Jesus holds it. Because he's the author and the perfecter of your faith. Because he's the one that has initiated your salvation, closed it, and will glorify you someday. It isn't you. Here's what we see from Jesus himself. John chapter 6, which is not up there, we know famously Jesus is saying, this is the will of God that I should, be, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. I don't lose anything, but I raise it up in the last day. Okay, I want to go back for a second. Notice that what we're talking about here, Paul says this is not a good way to think because you've got to remember we have a hope of righteousness. The glorification of the believer is at hand here. It's what he's talking about. But back to this, he says, because I will raise it up in the last day. Verse 6 is not on the screen. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have not just life, eternal life. That's a promise from above. That's chapter 6. 
John 10, a few chapters later, my sheep hear my voice. This is on the screen, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. If you believe you can lose your salvation, you are calling Jesus Christ a liar and a man who cannot fulfill his vow, a man who won't keep his covenant and doesn't love you enough, isn't strong enough, doesn't care enough to hold what he bought, what he paid his life for, what you were ransomed for. It's a very dangerous business, isn't it? Ephesians 4.30 says this about the Holy Spirit, one with the Father and the Son. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Nobody breaks the seal that Jesus stamps on you. Nobody, including you. So it is not that. Here are the three possible, possible interpretations of this. I'm going to tell you right away. I lean to the number one one here, right off the bat, that I think what he's talking about is to believers who have lost their way. Because that's the context of what we're dealing with here. There, He's talking to believers who have heard a false doctrine, and they're starting to just listen to it. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It means they're getting off track. And I think that's what we're dealing with here. But here's the three things. Grace is more than just pardon. Number two, they were never among us. There may be some non-believers who are listening to this. And then there are believers, and they'll be saved, but as through fire. Three categories that potentially could be the interpretation of this. Let me start with the first one. The very first one is that grace is more than a pardon. Let me just explain that. We've talked about this in hour one. Grace is, is necessary for all things for a Christian walk. Grace is necessary for every breath you take in Christ. Grace is certainly necessary for every t- uh, step you take and every breath you take and every word you speak that has anything to do with his kingdom and his glory and his will. You can't do any of it in your, on your own. And if you try, I promise you, you will miserably fail. I've certainly tried it. If I think that it's up to me to save people, it's not going to happen. If I believe that every good deed that I commit, everything that I pursue... Earlier today, we talked about putting on, putting off. If I try to do that in my own strength, I will ultimately fall short. Ask Peter. He tried it. And until the Holy Spirit came into him and he understood fully that it was all about him, he didn't understand grace. It's more than just pardon. It goes beyond that. Here's what we see in Scripture. John chapter 1, 16 and 17. Look at how it's described here. From, for from his fullness, Christ's fullness, we know John 1 is speaking of Christ who was the Word, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Salvation and then sanctification. Daily walk. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, As we consider Christ's commission to the believer, teach them in all of these things that I've told you. Not just salvation. That's where it starts, but all the way to live for me. That you're going to preach repentance. What does that look like? Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 raises us up with him and seats us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That certainly has a long view of glorification, but it has a view for us today as we walk with him. Grace upon grace as we continue on. Notice Ephesians 1, 5 through 9. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 
He predestined us for this. To the praise of His glorious grace. This is all about grace. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He continues to bless us day to day in the grace that He gives us. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Salvation. The forgiveness of our trespasses on a daily basis according to the riches of His grace. Let me pause in the middle of this passage and remind you of 1 John 1.9. That is not to a non-believer. 1 John 1.9 is for the believer. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness daily so that we can have the full joy of walking with Him, so that we can have the continued blessing of being in His presence in good fellowship with Him. Back to the text, verse 8 which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. How and where? His word. Walking with Jesus, part of the grace that we have in Christ is that he lets us know more about who he is and what he wants us to be and how we walk with him. That's part of grace. Walking with Jesus, the fullness of life, not just life, but life more abundantly. That's walking with Jesus. That's what it looks like. It's more than, more than just pardon. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despises the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Founder, perfecter, continues to sanctify you until you're taken home. And will even continue that at the resurrection in your glorification. It's more than just the pardon. That's the most important, no doubt. But he continues to sustain you through his grace. And then Romans 8, to finish this idea, from, from those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's part of the grace. He's making you into what he wants you to be, transforming you, conforming you, progressive sanctification at work in you. That's the grace of God too. And that's so important as we consider what we're talking about here. That we are justified, look at verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Notice the progression. He perfected you. He's changing you. He's conforming you. He eventually will perfect you, rather, in glorification. That's all part of God's grace. It's much more than pardon. Here's how we see this, and I think maybe possibly John Piper has a great handle on this more than so many others. Here's one of his famous quotes about this. I've heard him do multiple sermons on walking in God's grace. But here's a quote that I thought was fitting for us today, referencing this. Grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. Heavy stuff, but good. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabled gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon, Therefore, the effort we make to obey God is not an effort done in our own strength, but in the strength which God supplies. Okay, so as we look at that, possibility number one, which I really lean to, as we think about this, you're severing yourself from this blessing. You're weakening and lessening this incredible grace that is there for you, that you should have, that you should embrace as we read that again, verse 4, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from all of this beautiful thing, these things. These things that were for you, that He promised that He's perfecting you in, that He's transforming you in. That's possibility number one. I think it's a strong possibility, don't you? Possibility number two is this. 
as we go forward. I'm going the wrong direction. Whoops, went too far, sorry. There we go. Possibility number two. 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. So possibility number two is Paul is talking to non-believers in their midst. And that's also, by the way, possibility one and possibility two could be working at the same time. They could be working at the same time here, too. That we are not embracing the grace we should have, that we should enjoy, but also some of you don't even know what it is. You haven't even tasted it yet. 2 Timothy 2.12 says this, If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. One of the marks of a true believer is endurance. That you continue in the faith. That's somehow how, sometimes how we can find out if you aren't with us. As time goes on, as difficulties come, as we'll see, and you fall away from it. Here's what we see in Hebrews 6. Very difficult passage. A lot of different possibilities to interpret this too, but I'll just tell you, MacArthur's take on this we're going to see in a moment. Here's, he connects it, by the way, to the Galatians 5 passage. Here's what he says. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've heard, heard the gospel, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucified once again, the, crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Right away, I'll just tell you, there's a couple interpretations of this. Is this to a believer or a person who thinks they're a believer and isn't. A couple different interpretations. And you can go either way on this, and I've heard great defenses on both sides of this. I tend to think this is somebody who's been around believers, who has seen it, who has tasted of it, who has seen the, the magnificent power, transforming power of the Holy Spirit and believers, who have clearly heard the Word of God taught and preached and lived out. They've been around it. They've faked it for a while, but they never embraced it. They never believed it. They weren't drawn. They didn't, even if they were, they, they rejected it, and they never really were amongst us. That's, tendi- that's my tendency to believe what that interpretation is. There are others. But here's what MacArthur says about this and the Galatians 5 passage together. When you get to the brink of considering whether you're going to believe and receive Christ by faith or go the way of works, understand this. Turn your back on Christ, and you're severed from him. He is speaking of interested but unconverted folks. That's why he calls them you. There's no middle ground here. It's all of Christ or none of Christ. All of him or none of him. But that's not all. There's another effect. If you go the way of a hybrid religion, Christ has no benefit to you. You are a debtor to the whole law. We've heard this. You are fallen from grace. You are severed from Christ. You have literally fallen from grace. You've fallen out of the category of grace. You stood on the platform, you looked at salvation by grace, you turned your back, you went the other way, you've fallen from grace, and those are the words essentially used in Hebrews 6. So his take is, there's some amongst us who who don't know what we're talking about. They think they do, but they don't know. So that's a possibility. That's possibility number two, and that's the rocky ground of Matthew chapter 13. Notice what Jesus says in the, the parable of the sowers. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. It seems like they're in Christ, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, a while, and when tribulation, persecution, maybe false teaching 
rises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So that's that possibility. The mark of the true believer is endurance. That's what we see in the Gospels. That w- that's what we see from the author of Hebrews. You will be hated by all my, for all my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Okay? There is a mark of a believer. There's many, but one is endurance. Possibility number three, as through fire. Famously, we know from Paul's description of the judgment seat of Christ, the beam of judgment, he makes a reference to, to gold, silver, precious stones, wood, stubble, and hay, each tested by fire. This is referencing our work in Christ, and here's his conclusion. Each one, 1 Corinthians 3.13, his work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is kind of a combo of one and three. There could be some some amongst us who are believers, but they have just not allowed the Holy Spirit to do that uh, uh, sanctification work in them. They've resisted. They've pushed back. They've hidden it. And they've done nothing of effective work for the name of Jesus. And they're saved, but as through fire. So that's a possibility that kind of goes with number one. And I tell you, context tells me number one is what we're dealing with here. But again, could be a combination of those three things. Back to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 verse 6. Paul's conclusion on this portion. He says this, 5, 6. We've read it already, but he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. Now, I could have my son, Hawk, stand up and read the next, or say the next passage by heart. Should I challenge? I'm not going to challenge him to do that. I assigned this to my seniors this year, as a me- or this week as a memory verse. He got 100 on the test, so let's see if he's cheating. No, I won't do that. But here's what we see. Paul's conclusion is very clear. And I love this because this is exactly where we need to stand. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. My guess is you know it too. Here's the conclusion Paul comes to. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is what God wanted that young, rich ruler to see. That this, everything else I'm bringing to the table is worthless All I have is faith in Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's it. Knowing Christ, gnosis. It's not just intellectually knowing him, it's experientially knowing him. It's not just... On the surface, I know who he is. It's by the heart. It's everything that I am, as we discussed in hour one. It's knowing him personally and intimately because he knows you the same way. It rattles us every time we consider Christ talking about the judgment of the nations or sheep and the goats judgment when we hear those uh, hollow words, those scary words, depart from me, I never knew you. Knowing Christ is dependent on grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. That's Paul's conclusion of that section. Number four, why reject legalism? Legalism works against sanctification. 
And brother and sister in Christ, we desperately need to not disrupt the process of sanctification. Our desire to be more like Christ should be paramount in every moment that we open up the Word of God. Every time we look at God's Word in our daily study, as we come to church, as we go to small group, as we hear it on the radio, it is, what am I doing? How is God trying to transform me? I need Him to make me more like Him because I'm representing Him. Think of the headiness of the idea of you being His ambassador, the one in whom He makes His appeal through. So here's what we see in Galatians 5, 7 through 10. We'll go quickly for these last few. You were running well. You were doing well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from Jesus. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now keep this in mind. He's using a runner's analogy here. Paul likes to do that, and you know of these passages. I want you to note here that there is a consistency with this. Here's the runners. Therefore, since we are, chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews, surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay us out every weight and sin which clings us so closely. Let us run with what? Endurance the race that is set before us. What could be clinging so closely? The weight? It could be legalism. It could be a sin. It could be self-righteousness. But we run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not think that in, all, in the race that all runners run, but only one receives the pride, prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it? He's not talking about salvation here. Clearly, he's talking about that moment where you face Jesus in judgment for reward. And don't disqualify yourself from not being a witness. I think, in part, 1 Corinthians 9 is, is talking to people who, who decide to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. Be careful that you run in such a way that you don't disqualify yourself from having the ability and the honor to preach the name of Jesus. But that's also you on a, on a daily basis so that your testimony lines up with what Christ is telling you to tell others. And then as we go forward in this and we think of this, following the truth and not lies, we need to be careful about how we walk. It's not just running, it's walking. Brothers, join me in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Look at other people. Look at the example you're supposed to walk in. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Paul's going to reference this later in, in verse 12. And the glory is in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he talks about this due penalty here in verses 10 and 11 and 12. Many of you will follow, many will follow their sensuality, 2 Peter 2, 2 through 3, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Then the Lord who knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's verse 9. So if we go back to Galatians chapter 5, we reread that passage. We know what he's talking about. Why are we not running as well as we were? In part, it's because we're listening to lies. Told by us to ourselves or by false teachers that we hear on the radio or somewhere else or amongst other believers, this persuasion does not come from Jesus, it says in verse 8. It comes from the false teaching that we have to be beware of. The one who's troubling, troubling you will bear the penalty. There is consequences for this. This is what 
Paul is trying to establish here. This is a dangerous doctrine. And then finally, number five, legalism takes away the offense of the cross. And we're going to spend just a moment on this. But i got to tell you, Jesus is trying to prepare us in the upper room in John 17 when he tells his apostles for the last time, they're going to hate you because they hated me. He tells the Father as he's praying for them, the world hates them because they hate you and they hate me. I want you to understand that there is a cost to you and to me for embracing the cross of Jesus Christ. The cost is everything. The cost is potentially losing friends, losing family. The cost is difficulty, pain, and suffering. But I'm going to tell you, brother and sister, it's worth it. What God tells us to do is to make sure that we never take away the offense of the cross. Galatians chapter 5, 11-12 says this as we finish. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. I'm not going through this for nothing, Paul is saying. This persecution is real. It was warned by our Savior. We know it's true. Paul continues to warn us of this. Paul has lived a life of illustration of this. The reason why the cross is offensive, brothers and sisters, is because it's exclusive. It points to our sin, our necessity for a Savior, and the reality of hell. And that is a very, very difficult message to preach, but it is extremely necessary. And it will never not be offensive. It will be. And anyone who tries to take that away is taking Christ out, he's taking the truth out, taking God's Word out, and the predestined, preordained plan of salvation out of the Gospel. And that is not good news, folks. That's bad news. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in me, in him, will not be put to shame. This is an offensive stumbling block type of message that we deliver but it is good, and when you embrace it, you will never be put to shame by your Savior, the one who really matters. Peter puts it this way, So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. And what is that stone? He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is not something that changes over time. The gospel will never change. Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews tells us, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That includes his message. Remember, he is the word. He is the one. He's the one that we should focus on. And to finish, I'd like you to just quickly turn to the passage that we were in, but let's look at verse 9 and following so we can take this to the streets today. 1 Peter chapter 2, bear with me for just another moment. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I know we've been here a while. 1 Peter chapter 2, I think this is exactly where God needs us to end today. 1 Peter 2. So Peter has told us this is an offensive message. It's a stumbling type message. This is a difficult message. But look at verse 9 for you who believe. Remember, you will not be put to shame according to Paul in Romans chapter 9. But look at verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 2 should be there by now. 
Then the Lord who knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority, bold and willful, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the holy ones. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong one. First Peter, second Peter, sorry. First Peter 2. Sounded good for a minute though, didn't it? First Peter chapter 2, 7 and 8. As soon as we got to that, I knew we were in the wrong place. So, <laughs> so the honor is for you who believe. That's what I want. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here's where we are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. That's the one I wanted. Why? We do good works for a reason. It is not for salvation. It's so that people can see the goodness and glory of God as you walk in His grace day to day, and they can see that you're different, and then you can tell them why. That is what this is about. So I apologize for taking you to the wrong place, but we're in the right place now. This is what God wants for you. You have been taken from darkness into his marvelous light. It's time to live that way, in his grace and in his mercy. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for this scripture. I thank you for the the depth of this scripture, and I thank you for reminding us of the danger of adding anything to what you perfectly have already accomplished. I pray that as we walk on our daily life, that we do things that do glorify you, that people can see transformed lives, and that gives us the platform, the megaphone, the opportunity to proclaim your truth, that we walk by faith and we don't walk by our own righteousness. We can't. We thank you that you've given us this for a daily, our daily lives, and I pray that we take that to the streets today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.